0: Hello listeners, my name is Craig Zerpolo and this is Why Science, a podcast about scientific research and its impact on policy and the community at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by Kobe, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu and wvcw.org. This work was supported in part by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for today's episode is provided by Fight Cloud. Download their new album, Will Be Right" from Bandcamp at fightcloud.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Barnes, an assistant professor of health behavior and policy at VCU. Dr. Barnes, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give a brief overview of your work at VCU?
1: Sure, yeah, so my name is Andrew Barnes. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Policy. And uh, I came to VCU from UCLA when I graduated uh, in 2011. And uh, since coming here, my research has evolved quite a bit, and uh, now got my fingers in a lot of different little pies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been great to be at VCU f- so for these four years because it's given me a lot of freedom to get pretty deeply involved in a number of very interesting kind of policy topics uh, for myself. So yeah.
0: Did you start research as an undergraduate or did you get into it later and kind of what was your initial interest with that? Yeah,
1: it's really funny. Um, I I started research uh, as an undergrad. I did my honors thesis in uh, neuroscience. So I was a neuroscientist. And then uh, I thought I wanted to go to medical school. Both my parents were uh, MDs. And uh wasn't really sure I wanted to go. My mom was like, you know, you really shouldn't go. My dad was uh, very much in the camp of you should go. And so I ended up working uh, for a startup company doing uh, pharmaceutical chemistry. uh, And that was a lot of fun. And then still didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to Peace Corps. And in Peace Corps, I kind of found public health. And I came back from Peace Corps and ended up getting a master's of public health in Tulane. And um, then ended up working uh, in health policy. And that kind of led me to doing health policy research at UCLA, which brought me here.
0: So where did you go with the Peace Corps?
1: I was in French West Africa. I was in Mali.
0: What kind of work did you do? Um,
1: HIV Pharmaceutical Policy.
0: So what did that entail on a day-to-day basis? Right. On a day-to-day basis, it really entailed working
1: with uh, the local government, particularly in the capital, to help uh, find ways to make prescription drugs more affordable for people with HIV.
0: What was the big pivot moment for you when you did that, where you said that, you know, I want to bring this kind of work home with me and continue to explore it?
1: When I was in Peace Corps, Tulane had a program where... As part of your master's degree, you'd spend one year at Tulane and two years at Peace Corps. So I interacted with a lot of people getting their master's in public health while I was in Peace Corps. And I found in my life that, you know, I'm on the right road when I'm interacting with people and I look at them and say, that's what I want to do. And uh, that's pretty much how I've gotten to where I am right now.
0: And so what parts of that research did you bring back with you in particular with HIV? Was there oh. anything that you worked on when you were at Tulane specifically with that?
1: Yeah, when I was at Tulane, uh, I did my master's thesis in Thailand, and so I did more uh, HIV poli- uh, pharmaceutical policies. So I was working with uh, tribal populations up on the Myanmar border and uh, working for a foundation that was uh, funded by Elton John to bring uh, tr- a treatment for people who had opportunistic infections from HIV to uh, to these kind of rural tribal populations and try and work with the government to have more of these um, medicines available, particularly for um, tribal populations that weren't really citizens of Thailand at the time. So uh, they were like basically refugees.
0: Moving forward with that, uh, after you were at Tulane, you went to UCLA, Um, did your work change when you went from your uh, master's to your doctoral work? It it
1: really did. It's kind of funny. So I thought I was going to be an HIV guy. And uh, so when when I graduated from Tulane, it was right before the storm, before Katrina. It was the year before Hurricane Katrina, and uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities in New Orleans, even before the storm, for people in public health. And so I moved back to L.A., and I was trying to get a job in HIV in L.A., and I interviewed for a couple of HIV jobs, and I ended up landing a job in health policy, working with the uninsured in hospitals, uh, and that's kind of what... Opened my eyes to broader health policy, in the U.S. healthcare system, mm-hmm. and that's kind of when I made that switch.
0: With that sort of work with healthcare policy, um, how do people make decisions about healthcare, and what does your research tell you about, you know, ways that you can help people make more positive decisions?
1: A lot of what I've been working on for the last, gosh, six years now, have to do with the fact that it has to do with the fact that the central premise that. Um, making decisions about your health is incredibly complicated, particularly when uh, insurance is involved. Because insurance, we tend to treat insurance from an economic perspective as if it's like buying a smartphone or buying a car, and it turns out it's an incredibly complicated product to buy, and it's a product we don't understand very well as consumers, and we don't price very we we don't understand the prices, the true prices of the product, right? We tend to look at the premium, for example, the monthly price. but We don't think about the deductible or how much we're at risk of spending in the year. And we, and it's also an incredibly complicated decision because we have to think about forecasting our expected health needs in the next year. Like how healthy or sick am I going to be in the next year? How much insurance do I need to buy? Um, and, and all of those things uh, wrapped up together make for a very difficult shopping experience. So part of what I've done with some of my colleagues is I work with a lot of psychologists so I'm trained as a health economist so half my PhD is in health policy and half is in the economics PhD program at UCLA and I work with a lot of psychologists and together when you put the two of us together we kind of create what's called behavioral economics and that that's a a field that's been around for a little while now and it's really interested in helping identify where people make poor decisions and ways to correct them and I think that you know from our research what we've been doing is uh, helping people um, go through simulated insurance choice experiments and trying to identify where they're getting it wrong and how could we reformat the decision, change the way that we present them with information or change the market to help people make better decisions. And those are things like... Simply having fewer options, um, realizing that some people are really bad at math and bad at numbers and maybe pictures and symbols work better sometimes for people, not using jargon, educating people while they're making the decision about what these terms mean. There's all kinds of things we can do. And so that's a lot of what I've been doing lately. And now we've got... um, a book that we're working on that has all to do with uh, behavioral economics and health behaviors, and it's going to have about uh, 12 chapters, and it's looking at, uh, we're writing a chapter on insurance, we've got chapters on HIV and uh, diabetes and all kinds of strange health behaviors that people, in which people don't make very rational decisions, and yet we base our healthcare system and the way that we finance it uh, upon this premise that people are these rational actors when oftentimes they're not. Yeah.
0: And so in that sort of work, I know that um, when I was looking up information about you, it mentioned that uh, a project that you had worked on as a Ph.D. student, you were using as a textbook for a class that you were teaching. Yeah. So kind um, of tell me about how that work that you've done in the past as a researcher informs your work as a teacher and how your work as a teacher informs what you do as a researcher. That's
1: a, that's a great question. Um, so I'll never forget what happened. Uh, I was at a party with a professor, actually a bunch of professors, and one of them came up to me and he said, you know, I, I had an offer to write a book about the U.S. healthcare system, but uh, I don't have the time to do it. Can you help and so this is when I was a student, and I said sure, and, and so two of us and two other people uh, wrote this book that was financed by the World Health Organization about the U.S. healthcare system, and, and then um, when I came to VCU, uh, obviously I'm in the Department of Health Behavior and Policy, and they needed someone to teach health policy and about the U.S. healthcare system, so you know I used the book to uh, kind of as the backbone of the class. Of course, health policy is kind of constantly updating itself. If you watch the elections, the news, <laughs> or anything, uh, it's this constantly evolving field. So I have to rewrite the class every year. But the book, some of the central tenets of, of the healthcare system, you know, haven't changed. Or as they evolve, it's so important to know kind of where we came from. So, um, and I think that my classwork involves uh, informs my research because what I try and do is I try and structure my classes so that here's an example. I uh, I. What I like to, One of my assignments is I have students um, create Wikipedia pages about health policy topics or edit Wikipedia pages about health policy topics because, you know, we're consumers of, of the Internet now. We also need to be contributors. And so that's one of the ways in which I kind of use my class to contribute to research or inform research or at least inform what we know about the world, which is, I think what research does. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the other way that I use my class to kind of inform research is we are constantly updating. We have a website that um, our book is on, it's, so our book is free. You can go to the European Observatory on Health and download it for free. And, and on that website, we're constantly updating it with kind of what's happening in health policy. And So I, I learn a lot from my students about their perspectives on health policy and what they think is happening, and that helps inform me right about health policy. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's a nice feedback loop.
0: Is there anything you've done research-wise with insurance that, that looks at students and ways that schools or, or other groups could inform students better about insurance and kind of, you know, what goes into making those sorts of health care decisions?
1: Well, I mean, for students, it's a little different because they tend to be on their parents' insurance when they're in school. Um, but I think a lot of our work in um, in alcohol use and tobacco use has has informed. It uh, has a little bit to do with, with you know, student experiences in college. And, and some of our work now um, on electronic cigarettes as well have, have more to do with kind of student experiences. Health insurance is tricky, though. But so we have done, actually, there has been some work we did with medical students. And uh, so we had a study which was done up uh, at Mount Sinai in New York, and um, it was run with medical students. And we gave them a very simple task. We asked them to pick um, a Medicare Part D plan. Medicare Part D is a prescription drug benefit for seniors, and so basically you're picking an insurance plan to cover just prescription drugs. That's all it does. And so we gave them these, this uh, choice task, these medical students, and, and and said, you know, here's three options, and then here's nine options of nine different drug plans, and the th- original three were in the nine. And we said, pick the cheapest one, and, and it was, it, if you studied it for a while, you could figure out which one was the cheapest one. And think, like, Fewer than half the doctors, if I remember, got it right. Or the, the trainees, the, the students got it right. So, um, you know, it's, you know, trying, I think part of that was also try to inform students and medical educators about if patients are going to be asking you about health insurance decisions or financing for care, um, maybe it's in, you know, your interest and your, your patient's interest to know something about it. Um, and, there, and and the fact that even doctors, did a, or doctors in training, found choosing an insurance plan very difficult, I think gave us
0: some pause. So kind of changing gears, um, I know that you've worked or you've contributed some questions to Spit for Science, which is a large research project that a lot of Kobe collaborators work on. And um, some of those questions relate specifically to occupation and substance use. Could you kind of give us an overview of the kind of research that you do related to uh, occupation and substance use, and whether or not there are patterns between certain occupations and say how much they drink or how much mm-hmm. they smoke?
1: And this is one of those things where you know you kind of follow what you're passionate about. Um, so and we've already talked about a couple of different research topics, right? Um, so I got into um, substance use and working. As a graduate student, I was a doctoral student and I read a paper by someone named Chris Room, who's now at UVA. And it was a very funny paper. Um, his paper said, well, you know, when unemployment rate is high, people drink less. And I was kind of like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You know, I thought, like, you know, if people are unemployed, they're going to want to go out and drink more. Um, and so I kind of dug into this literature about, well, is in some sense, working... Does In some sense, is working versus not working kind of make it a, uh, contribute to less healthy behaviors in many respects and so i started digging into and there's another peculiar finding which was that folks who uh, drank tend to earn more money than people who didn't drink which also was very strange um so i spent about uh two or three years my dissertation trying to unpack that relationship between working and, and and alcohol use and so when i came to to so VCU, um, I had the opportunity to add some questions to Spit for Science, and, and one thing that we knew or still know very, very little about is how is it working uh, related to substance use among college students? We know quite a bit about high school students, but we know very little about that relationship among college students, so we added some questions, and we've got a paper that's um, under review right now at a journal, um, which is led by a student. So she's the first author, and she was an undergrad here and worked on Spit for Science. Her name is Rose Bono, and she's been doing a great job. Uh, and that, that paper... It's interesting. We, we we kind of beat the data pretty hard and uh, we find out that there's not a very strong relationship between working and substance use in college. Um, and we're wondering if, um, you know, if you're concerned about um, determinants of substance abuse at college, maybe employment isn't the best predictor uh, of substance use. Maybe it's other more general things that stress you out. And part of it's because college is such a weird time. You know, you're especially if you're working and in college, and most students are working a few hours and uh, working is only um, part of what they're doing and and uh, they may be too busy to, to drink very much or smoke very much because they're so busy being in school and working, you know? So uh, it's 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 been interesting to look at. Um, but I think that's important is, you know, when part of what our job is, is to find that void where we don't know anything and try and fill it. And sometimes we fill it with, Maybe there's not much there. And sometimes we fill it with, oh my gosh, we should really worry about this. And so the jury's out. But um, I think what's been great about this bit for science study is that it's the f- uh, the first really big study, at least that we know of, that's really dug pretty deep into the relationship between working, uh, work hours, earnings, smoking, and drinking among college students uh, in this big of a sample. So it's been fun.
0: One more big dog leg oh. in terms of making sure that we cover all of the <laughs> expansive research that you do. Um, speaking about... The opioid crisis in, in Virginia and nationwide and statewide, there have been programs that have been implemented trying to address it in different ways. And I'm curious, what does all of this mean for students? What does this mean for, for being on a college campus and, and trying to cope with these issues and come up with policies that will help alleviate some of the stress on students and on faculty and administrators?
1: Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Uh, so, well, first of all, I think that as a society, we're not doing a very good job of recognizing the substance abuse crisis that we've, we're have currently having or that we've had historically. What's what's changing right now about that crisis is it's really moving into populations where we didn't think uh, we we're going to see these like opiate epi- ep- epidemics. So, particularly like you know, better people that are more well off, and and people like students, and people like uh, you know, working families, and. Uh, I think what's happening is uh, it's interesting. I think what, what we need to worry about as students and as faculty and as educators and as staff and as people in these communities is think very hard about the prescriptions that we're requesting and the prescriptions that were being prescribed and realize that um, I think we know a little bit more about the abuse liability of some of these prescriptions. Like how addictive are they? And you know, do you really need that painkiller um, when you uh, hurt your knee? Because the painkiller isn't healing you. The painkiller is masking the pain. The physical therapy will help you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we there's a couple of things. I think that as a as a college, um, as as university students and faculty and staff, and as a community, we need to be more thoughtful and proactive about whether or not um, we want to be consuming some of the prescriptions that we're consuming in the sheer quantity that we do. And I think we can do a better job of informing people about the dangers of some of these prescriptions um, and how addictive they are. And then also do a lot more to help people who are addicted um, and bring them out of the shadows. Because um, what's happening is it's really scary. People are getting addicted to prescription drugs. This is happening all over the country in places like Idaho you know, and, and Richmond. You know, and Galax, Virginia, you know, is that people are getting addicted to these prescription opioids and then finding it difficult to get them and then turning to heroin, you know, and finding themselves in a very um, unfortunate position uh, and now addicted to a very illegal and um, very expensive substance that uh, they have to interact with some oftentimes not-so-nice people to get. Um, And uh, so I, I think... As a university, I, I would like to see more policies on educating people about the, the dangers of prescription drug abuse and, and kind of downstream effects and also more resources to help people um, you know, with treatment.
0: And I know that uh, statewide, there are specifically programs like the Naloxone Pilot Program that that will put that drug into the hands of, of pe- family members and users that, mm-hmm. and it will make uh, an incredible mm-hmm. difference for them. It can save lives. And I'm curious if there are other states or countries or other places where they've dealt with substance abuse epidemics like this? like, Are there any models for dealing with things like this where, where governments have, have come up with policies that have made big differences? Or is this kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of substance abuse issues more broadly, just worldwide?
1: That's another really good question. Um, so I think that one of the areas we can really work on Uh, from a policy perspective is making sure that these kind of self-injecting naloxone pens, uh, those types of, um, you know, little devices where kind of like an auto-injecting epi pen where it tells you what to do, right? (laughs) It says, put on your leg, for example, push button, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, I was talking to someone uh, we have, there's a company here in in Richmond that, uh, someone who's a graduate from from BCU, started uh, this naloxone company and uh, self-injecting naloxone company and we were having a conversation and, and and they're having a lot of challenges getting this pin covered by insurance, um, uh, private insurance and Medicaid insurance. Um, and so it's strange, you know, to us that to, to someone who's in health policy that this seems like a no brainer to cover, particularly when you have a company that's willing to sell it for a very affordable price. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot more we can do there. And I don't know. Some there have been some states like. I think Ohio has been doing quite a bit with the opiate crisis. And one of the things they've been doing a pretty good job of, which we're working on here in Virginia too, is to have this prescription drug monitoring systems in place where if you come to a physician and you want a prescription opiate, the physician actually has to actively go into a system, enter in your name, find out if you're getting it from anyone else, Mm -hmm. and then prescribe you. Or if you go to the ED, emergency department, Uh, And you're like, it's drug seeking behavior. You go to the emergency department and you want, you know, more prescription opiates. Um, The emergency departments, some health systems have said, you know, we're only going to give you a three day supply instead of a 30 day supply. And so I think that'll help a lot. Um, And, you know, we've just got to, we've got to work on both the supply side of this problem, which is the providers and the insurance systems and, the, you know, uh, the hospital systems not the insurance, the, the providers and the hospital systems, but also the demand side, you know, the, you know, really educating people about the dangers of, of these, these prescription drugs and also trying to do a better job of understanding like, you know, what, what are the causes of, of substance use and when, when can we intervene, you know? And th- some of those answers are, are very challenging, um, Paul. From a policy perspective, they may be like, you know, raising education levels. So that's a really tough thing to do. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, like maybe having more people go to college or having providing more opportunity for people. I mean, some of those, some of the real solutions are big picture solutions. That you know, when a lot of the times as researchers, we get so f- nuanced and focused on the little, the the little pieces that. Uh, We sometimes lose the forest for the trees and realize that some of the problems that we have in this country, particularly like substance use, are going to require some big initiatives to change.
0: On that topic of substance use, uh, we're very excited to be hosting you to talk at our From Research to Rehab town hall on April 15th. Um, Could you give us a little preview of kind of what you'll be talking about and sort of your goals for coming to speak at that?
1: What I'd like to talk about still mulling it over but i think i'm going to talk about uh is kind of the landscape of the opiate crisis here in virginia and maybe why it's relevant to students and colleges and 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 college experiences and then kind of bring my lens to the table which is policy right and so we talk a little bit about um the current policies in virginia that are aimed at either they're currently law or we think are gonna come into law by then um Uh, and how they might affect or improve the situation, Uh, and also maybe a little bit about how do we evaluate policies that are trying to intervene on substance use and whether or not they're achieving the effects that they are designed to achieve.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm really excited to hear your talk. Thank you so much for coming in to speak with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again to Dr. Andrew Barnes for joining us. To learn more about Dr. Barnes' upcoming talk and other speakers at the From Research to Rehab Town Hall meeting, visit kobe.vcu.edu symposium. Our final segment, Mindful Music, encourages listeners to take a break, be present, and appreciate artistry from local performers at the end of each episode. Today's Mindful Music is Will Be Alright, the title track from Fight Cloud's new LP. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy.
1: set the world on fire
0: and start it out when all the ash perspired a better world came.